0: In one way, shape, or form, the nonprofit sector is in the business of change. That's what we do. We change the circumstances for the homeless, the immigrants. We lobby politicians to change laws about the necessity for background checks before someone can buy a gun. We work to change hearts and minds about disenfranchised minorities. We change attitudes about what folks with disabilities or autism are really capable of. We advocate for women's reproductive health. We bring faith into the conversation. And generally, our work is all about making things better, changing things. And this is what draws us to the sector, right? We have the chance to make a difference, to create change. And yet, when it comes to making changes ourselves or introducing a sustainable change in your organization, well, that just kind of seems to be a horse of an entirely different color. So much of the work I do is about change management. A leadership transition, a new ED, transforming your board, making changes to the roles and responsibilities in your organization in order to be more effective in the pursuit of your mission. And it's hard. It's really hard. And so I wanted to be able to help you think about change in a different way, to offer you tools you can use in your life and in your organization to help introduce change and to do what I can to help you to ensure that it lasts. My guest has, along with her partner, Robert Keegan, been studying change for decades. And I grabbed this observation I thought was interesting. They say, quote, we consider supporting the transformational learning of others an increasingly necessary feature of effective leadership since nearly all leaders in as dynamic a world as our own are called upon to lead processes of change. The book that we are going to talk about today with its author, is not brand new, but it was brand new to me last year, and I found its lessons to be quite powerful. And as with so many really good ideas, they're pretty simple. In this business of change nonprofit leaders find themselves in, it seems like we can use as many tools as we can get. Welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. Not enough money, too many cooks, and abundance of passion. Leading nonprofits isn't easy, Joan Gary, author, blogger, and founder of the nonprofit Leadership Lab, gets it. She is here to help. Lisa Leahy is co director of Minds at Work, a consulting firm serving businesses and institutions around the world, and she's on the faculty at the Harvard University Graduate School of Education. Lisa teaches an executive development program at Harvard and Notre Dame, and she's regularly asked to present her work throughout the world, most recently in China and New Zealand. Lisa has been on the faculty of the World Economic Forum's Davos Conference and has had her work featured in the Harvard Business Review, the New York Times Sunday Business Section, Oprah Magazine, and Fast Company. Leahy and longtime collaborator Robert Keegan are credited with a breakthrough discovery of a hidden dynamic, the immunity to change, which impedes personal and organizational transformation. Her work helps people to close the gap between their good intentions and their behaviors. This work is now being used by executives, senior teams, and individuals in business, government, and educational organizations in the United States, South America, Europe, and Asia. She and her colleague Robert Keegan have written two of the preeminent books on change. Um, One is called Immunity to Change. One is called How the Way We Talk Can Change the Way We Work. And she just told me about another book that they have written called The Everyone Culture. Today, we are focusing in on the lessons of how the way we talk can change the way we work. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us today. Ah, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So I found myself a bit skeptical when your book was suggested to me. The notion that how we talk can be a key component of change management fascinated me. And at the same time, I thought, really?
1: change is so complex.
0: (laughs) Our relationship to it is so complicated. Yeah. Talk to me about the title of your book.
1: Yeah. So let's just start with how the way we talk can change the way we work is possibly the longest title of any (laughs) book history, right? (laughs) Yeah. It's a mouthful. Um, And so I want to emphasize Uh, the point you just made, which is change is in fact very hard. And the premise of this book is that there are so many default ways of communicating that actually keep us from being able to grow and keep us more in smaller spaces in our own minds and hearts, as well as in our connection with other people. So that's basically the premise of the book. And I would say it more formally by by noting that in every work setting there are certain forms of speech that are encouraged and other kinds of ways of talking are discouraged, right? So how we talk with each other in public or private conversations in groups or informal one-to-one, you know, every workplace is just abounds with norms around, you know, how much truth telling is there to power right uh are people communicating what they're grateful for who gets cc'd in an email all of these things that are invisible but very very powerful norms around what's what's in and what's out what's okay and what's not and what the whole book is intended to do is to help us to see some of those more default ways that do keep us in the smaller way? And how can we transform them so that the potential in every communication is towards our being the best people that we can come to be?
0: So interesting. Um, In the introduction of your book, you make a, a promise to help readers build something that will sort of alter their relationship to change. And you talk about your methodology being rooted in an understanding of three forces of nature, and in in my world of you know attempting to get uh, a leader to change or to try to transform a board, the, you know I tend to use the word inertia that is being this powerful influence. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but you talk about three um, th- three different ones, that inertia not included amongst them. And I wondered if you wanted to sort of take us through each of the three of them and each of them uh, and describe the sort of the impact that each has.
1: Yeah. So I'll start with uh, the formal physics terms for at least <laughs> two of them. Uh, and one of them is entropy. And the second one is negentropy. So I'm going to just start with those. And entropy uh, is its the process by which dynamic systems gradually fall apart. And we all know this, whether it's our car, it starts out new, you use it. It's our body. It starts out new. <laughs> it, using it, it runs down. That's entropy. That, the, you know, this basic idea that things eventually fall apart. The opposite um, kind of an energy is this energy called negentropy. And that's basically. Uh, doesn't disallow that things are running down, but it says at the same time, with you know, good luck, actually, and some effective supports, there are things that might be actually improving. And I would use as an example, um, something like our minds. I'm a developmental psychologist, so I think a lot about the extent to which we are able to actually grow our minds, grow our capacities. So on the one hand, you might say from an entropy perspective, like our eyesight is deteriorating, right? We need corrective lenses, Mm -hmm. many of us, myself included, as we age. But at the same time, you know, our capacity to see more deeply into situations and ourselves, more of the psychological dimension, that can become more acute. So we're growing that capacity. And in those sort of situations, we're actually able to Kind of release previous like psychological lenses of distortion. This is the essence of development. So those are two big forces. Hey, but Lisa, thir-
0: a question yeah. for you about the second one. Yeah, um is there a correlation um, when you were talking about it, it made me think of something that someone told me once that when I turned 60, which wasn't like my favorite day, but <laughs> when I considered the alternative, it was a special day, right? I'm with you. And yes. um, and and this uh, person in her late 20s said, 60 is the age I aspire to be mm. because I feel like people who are 60, um, she didn't say what you just said, but there was something about what she said that was about sort of, not with, she said wisdom, but, but like sort of your mind has actually, um, grown and developed and it has all this life experience that makes it, um, you know, I, I like to think that my mind and how it operates is more mature and has more going for it than it might have at an earlier age. And I just, I wonder if I'm on the right track as it relates to what you're talking about.
1: Yes, that is definitely the right track. And what I would add, which complexifies your comment a bit, is that it isn't just the passage of time uh, that you know you go from twenty and you spend more days alive that you get to be wiser. You really do need to have proper supports and challenges to incubate development. It is not an automatic thing in adulthood. Um, so I, I, I would just want to, Add that, right? Right. That
0: that, right doesn't happen naturally. You actually have to invest in it. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Good. All right. So um. So I interrupted you. We'd gone through entropy and negentropy. Yes. um, Yes. And you've actually explained them in such a way that
1: they don't sound too much like jargon. So there's a third one. (laughs) Right. So the third one is is the one that we are offering as actually our explanation for why it is that change is so hard. And this comes the closest to the word you used, which is inertia. And what we would say is the force is an immunity to change. This is a dynamic equilibrium that basically maintains the status quo. Ah. And one of the things that is uh, really important to, to my mind, (laughs) about an immunity to changes or even inertia is that people think about it as not very much energy is going into maintaining the status quo. But when you look at this particular force from the perspective that The book offers, you see that an enormous amount of energy is being put into the system to maintain the status quo. And we like to use the metaphor of having one foot on the gas pedal in a car. So, you know, you've got the accelerator going, there's a lot of energy there. And at the exact same time, you have a foot on the brake and there's a lot of energy there. And you would never know it from the outside because, Hey, the car is standing still. Right. But that doesn't mean that there's not a huge amount of energy that is being basically put into a system to hold it just as it is. And that, From our perspective, it's often one of the deepest reasons why change is so hard. People don't realize that there's an unconscious, hidden uh, part of them that is applying the foot to the brake, whether that's at the individual level or at the collective level. I'm so intrigued by this because
0: uh, inertia... Uh, I, I don't think of it requiring energy, right? So I think of uh, the couch potato watching Wheel of Fortune, right? Inert. Or better yet, I, a better example. Like, I really want to go to the gym. <laughs> mm, that's right. Right. I really want to go to the gym. Right. But inertia, I would say, inertia is a very powerful force in my uh, in my not being able to get up off my ass to go to the gym, which is really not that far away, so am I putting am I putting my foot on the on the gas and the brake concurrently?
1: Well, uh, I would like to suggest <laughs> that yes, if you genuinely want to go to the gym, yep, and I'm not going to doubt that just because you're not going. What this whole approach would suggest is that there's a part of you that is actively protecting you from something that you don't you're just not aware of so the fact that you're lying on the couch there from from one perspective looks like oh come on you're just so working against your goal there don't you see you could just get up and go to the gym but if we try on the idea that you're lying on that couch for a very good reason and you just don't know what that reason is that takes us into the curiosity, the inquiry around, okay, well, what is the foot on the brake about there? So who knows what it is? For people, it's quite different, but the methodology we use will reveal things like, okay, there's a part of me, yes, that wants to go to the gym. And there's another part of me that absolutely is committed to not being overly disciplined or a part of me that yeah. is committed to basically not working too hard, not having to sweat, or they could be a part of me that's committed to not finding out that yet again, I'm not going to be able to get into a routine about this. So why bother starting? I don't want to experience myself as a failure. So all of these, I mean, those are just three quick examples off the top of my head of what might be going on for a person, but the basic idea there is to just suggest that (laughs) we do what we do for very good reasons, whether we're aware of them or not, and the whole methodology invites us to be curious about why, so that we are then in a more powerful position to see it and then say, oh, actually... (laughs) I would like to take on that belief system I have that I'm going to fail again. And how could I set myself up in a different way to approach going to the gym this year?
0: Yeah, uh, um, uh, that's good. And I, uh, you know, when I do executive coaching, I often say that the most powerful thing a leader has is a question mark. Mm, right, yes. right, is the ability to ask a good question. So yes. um, I'm going to try to ask a good question here, Lisa. <laughs> um, I was really interested. Um, uh, clearly, the book, the thesis of your book, rests in the power of language. And um, you, you say this that work settings are language communities and that leaders are language leaders. And I really want to know more about that. What does it mean when you say a leader is a language leader?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anything a leader does, um, I guess that makes it sound pretty extreme. But the leader is a pretty important person in any organization. Yes. And it isn't just what the leader says. It's what the leader does. Yep. So a leader may say, for example... I really would like to hear when you disagree with the idea that I'm promoting here. And that could be a genuine invitation. And yet, if somebody comes to the leader and says, I'm concerned about X, Y, Z, and the leader does not listen, we know then that the person who took the risk of going to talk with the leader, is going to basically not take that risk again. Correct. Okay. It's, you know, what you do that becomes so powerful. Now, that's a really good example in some respects because the leader may genuinely want to be given upward feedback. And to this whole point that I was just making about an immunity to change, it could well be, that that very same leader has got a foot on the brake at the same time that is basically on behalf of, I mean, it could be lots of different things, but, you know, maintaining control, uh, wanting to be the person who everybody thinks really gets it. Um, and so in that way, it's actually quite hard to be able to receive feedback. So the main point that we want to be making about leaders as um language leaders is that they are always, leaders have no choice in the matter of whether or not they're a language leader. It just goes with the territory because what you say and what you do basically sets the stage. But we do have a choice as leaders about whether to be intentional about that aspect of our leadership, or if we're unintentional, our premise is that as leaders, then we just ratify the existing kind of default of our community's favorite forms of communication, which tend not to be oriented towards development. They tend to be more of the kinds of communications that will run us all down. Now, that's a generalization, but I want to suggest if we're not really intentional about creating language communities that spark development and that that allow us to see that there are immunities to change, we will by default head into that entropy force. So what's, you know, what's interesting
0: you talked about the difference between talking and doing, right? So in yes. that situation, the the leader says, I really want to hear what you have to say. And then when someone provides upward feedback, it's pretty clear that the leader doesn't really want to hear that. And, it, and to me, it's sort of – the, the, what I found interesting about your book is the, the focus on language because – People can talk a good game, but if they actually don't act like leaders, then what's right. the point? And so I, I find this interest the, the, the distinction between language and action to be sort of a very interesting one as it relates to leadership.
1: Yes. Yes. Y- absolutely. And, you know, I'm hoping we'll get a little bit into the languages themselves. Yes. Um, but, it, but to say that w- it's very easy to talk a certain, um, language. And by that, I mean content, like we have content and I can say as a leader, I can have all kinds of content that can be inspirational and so on, but the form of how I deliver that communication is an action. I know that's actually quite abstract, but that's really where our leadership is most, Uh, essential, that we are aware that there's synchrony between the what we're saying and the how we're saying it. And that's why in the title of the book, the how the way we talk can change the way we work is so critical because it's not what we say. Right. Not what we talk about. It's how we talk. So let's go to it. Let's go
0: to it. So, um, in the book, you, um, you talk about seven language transformations, and uh, you you put them into two categories. So, um, and and let's um, let's try, if we may, to bring them to life in a. In a setting that might be a, a nonprofit organization, let's say it's a, you know, I, I if you don't mind, like a, say a, you know, a homeless shelter that has way more need for homeless, you know, has way more need, wants to grow its capacity, and it may mean all kinds of different changes in the organization as a result. So maybe s- something like that that would just give it some context for our listeners. Yeah. So let's take yeah. this first the first set of them what what binds these four together and then if you could sort of just briefly because there's seven of them and I don't want to I don't want to run out of time let's okay. go through them
1: <laughs> all right so what uh, the first thing i want to say is that they're separated into two buckets because the first bucket is going to be focusing on the way individuals talk to themselves how you talk to your 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 own inner dialogue okay. and then second are bucketed in a way that's about social languages. And in each case, whether we're talking the internal languages or social languages, the main thing that we are trying to do is to signal that there is a typical way we tend to, unintentionally, if we're unaware, we tend to talk that keeps us in that smaller space. And we can transform that into a place where we can grow. So let's talk about in the uh, individual languages, the first four languages are all bound together by helping an individual to, to be able to see their limiting big assumptions. And uh, it starts off with a language of complaint to a language of commitment, and this is the idea that as an individual, like if I'm in the home a homeless shelter, right? I might let's say I'm I'm in the team of people who's running the homeless shelter, okay? And I might have a complaint that is like, okay, one of my colleagues is not pulling his or her weight, and that pisses me off. Okay, mm-hmm. that is a fairly typical way that people can talk about uh, their irritation, which is to put it outside of themselves and to, in a way, blame others. But if we can shift that and say, the very fact that you feel like there's something to complain about reflects that there's some value you have, it's inside of you, that is not being met. What's the value that you could name there? And then you could say, okay, I want people to be accountable. Okay, great. Now we're talking about you and the source of your irritation with the other person is about your sense that they have not been holding up their accountability. So what is in your power that you could be saying, I want to get better at having a team of people who's accountable to each other. Great. Now we're in the business of shifting from blaming somebody else to, hey, I have a hand in all of this. I can help our team to be more accountable to one another. Got it. And then the rest of the languages in that whole first section there shift to how am I going to actually step up and get better at helping our team to be able to hold one another, be, to be more accountable. And inevitably, I'm going to discover that there is some part of me. So w- let me just go back to the earlier part of the conversation we were having to make a, a bridge, which is as soon as I turn that complaint into something I'm now committed to, I've now identified what is the foot on the gas pedal? Going for okay, yep. the foot on the gas pedal here is going for. I want to get better at holding my colleagues accountable. Great. Now the process that we take people through in each one of these language shifts from there on out in this bucket will help reveal what is going on for that person around the foot that is on the brake. Yep. And. That might be something that the person uncovers is something like I, I really am committed to not having difficult conversations with people. I'm committed to keeping the peace. I'm committed to not being the person on the team who's always complaining about things not being done. I'm committed to the whatever it is. Now you're starting to see why is it that I've not been able to actually be in a more proactive stance towards keeping my colleagues in a more accountable space.
0: What I, um, I, I, I think this is, it's, it's so right on because it actually, it's all, it's kind of about reframing and oh, the other, okay, okay. Uh, right. All about reframing. The other thing I want to just say about this book, which I really like is that it's, it's more than a book. It has It it has the ability for you to work through these questions and these language transformations with worksheets. And uh, and you encourage people to uh, partner up with people to really explore this. That it isn't, you know, this isn't like some quick,
1: easy fix. So I really appreciate that you're naming this because the fact that the book is written as it is, is because we know it takes a lot of practice. And anyone can get these ideas at a cognitive level, but putting the things we know at an intellectual level into practice is really what makes the difference, right? Because somebody can say, I of course believe in not blaming other people. I believe in taking personal responsibility. And yet, it's actually a pretty challenging thing. If yeah. you most people track their own um, kind of how they talk about things very often they're externalizing who who's actually? Responsible here. It's not me, it's the powers that be. And I don't realize, for example, hey, I actually could use a voice, my own voice here and say, <laughs> I'm upset about this. But, but why is that so hard? It's hard for good reasons. And so the book is designed in a way that helps people to practice. And, and hopefully what it does is to give people permission to see that. They're, they're in very good company in, you know, <laughs> worldwide. This is very hard to do and to not beat ourselves up about it.
0: Yeah, I I think that's really true, and and the the other three in this category, one of them is somewhat similar. I think from the language of blame to the language of personal responsibility, yes, um, it feels feels very similar. And I, I kind of want you to come meet my three grown children because uh, <laughs> if I could if I could move their language from blame to the language of personal responsibility, we'd have some serious breakthroughs. Um, Uh, Can I grab onto one of the four before we move on to the other, which is uh, because I uh, want the, you talk about from the language of big assumptions that hold us to the big assumptions we hold. Yes. Tease that out for me just for a minute.
1: Yeah. So the idea that there are assumptions that hold us is trying to get at this notion that there are assumptions we're not aware of and that are in, they are in the driver's seat. Or if you can use the metaphor of they're the lenses that we are seeing, uh, the world through mm-hmm. and we're not aware that they're the lenses. So that's holding us and that's in distinction from The idea that we hold an assumption, and that's like this idea where we can take our glasses off and say, Hey, take a look at that. So, I have a different relationship to an assumption I'm holding versus an assumption that holds me. I'm captive, or we say we're subject to or at the mercy of an assumption that holds us, and we can't do anything with it then. But if we can actually hold it as an object. We're then in a much more powerful position to say, well, what do I think about that assumption? Do I believe it's true that if I actually told my colleagues I'm disappointed that they were not able to come to today's meeting having done what I thought they agreed to, that I'm going to ruin the relationship? Like, Mm -hmm. am I willing to explore that assumption? Uh And when I am, then I'm now in a very different territory. Again, it goes back to them. I can be curious about it.
0: Right. I mean, so, right. I I think about how often I talk with uh, nonprofit leaders who say, if I tell one of my board members that they are not fulfilling their obligations as board members, I fear they will leave the board. Yeah.
1: That's right. (laughs) Right. Right. I get that. And so if that is your fear, then of course you would understandably not want to actually ever say anything to your board member. And then you're kind of stuck with things just as they are. If, however, once you've named that explicitly the way you've just shared with me that you're Um, your client has, then you're in a position to ask the question, are you willing to explore this? Mm -hmm. Are you willing to explore that there's a way you could raise this uh, that might actually lead to a different result? Right.
0: Right. One of the results might be that they might leave and that might be okay, but there might be actually a way to offer feedback in such a way that the, that the board member changes her behavior and therefore becomes a more productive Board member That's in that
1: right. situation. That's right. Yeah. And I love the, that example because you you're you're identifying that there's two different levels of big assumptions going on in that situation. One is the assumption that if I speak my truth, the board member will leave. And then the other big assumption is, and if the board member left, that would be a bad thing. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly.
0: So now let's go, if I may, jump to the, uh, I think you called this sort of the external transformations. And there are, there are three of those. And let, let's spend a few minutes on, on each of those.
1: Okay. All right. So these are the social languages. Uh, and this is the idea when we turn to the social language part of the book, that it, we, we are all so much better at developing when we are offered proper challenges and supports. And if we only have ourselves to count on, um, we can make progress if we have, you know, adequate, developmental tools like those that are offered in the first part of the book, but we will definitely be in a much better position to to support our development and for us to support other people's development if we do it at a more social level. So the three different languages that we talk about there, one is the uh, shifting from the default language, we call it of prizes, um, which really it's like prizes and praise into a more transformative kind of communication which is about appreciations and uh, ongoing regard and this is this first social language is the idea that Um, We all need to feel supported and we all do better at work. If we regularly have the experience that what we do matters and is valuable to other people and our presence makes a difference to other people. And if we tune into most organizations kind of on this channel, it turns out that many organizations are actually not very good at helping people to see that they are valued contributors mm-hmm. and all too often when efforts are made to try to do that it's done in a in a way and this is the default way which is more prize and praise oriented mm-hmm. so we end up like praising somebody in ways that are not necessarily direct to the person. They're attributive of the person. They're not specific enough. So that would be an example like, um, you know, somebody walking out of the meeting and pats somebody on the back and says, that was really, you know, a great meeting you led there. Thanks. Okay. That's, you know, that's a form of appreciation, but it's really not letting the person in on what difference did that make for you. So if I could instead say, I really appreciated how you structured that meeting and made really clear at the outset what we were trying to accomplish. And you held us in the space where when we were going off track, you said, let's come back here. And we really accomplished what we set out to. And that is terrific. That is a whole different kind of input you have just been given that is about me expressing my regard for how structure in the meeting matters to me and that you had a lot to do with that. So Funny, I am
0: I, I, I'm, I'm prompted uh, a client conversation I had the other day where uh, she was reporting on a board meeting and she said, the board meeting was great. Yeah. And I said, well, what made it great? And she said it went really smoothly. The board members, uh, you know, didn't raise a lot of issues or questions. We ended on time. And I, I just simply said, does that for you define what a great, a great meeting is? Because maybe we should explore what great looks like. Yeah. <laughs> Because I'm thinking if you're on the other side of that conversation, the board member is sitting there saying, nobody asked me my point of view on one single thing for the the entire meeting.
1: Mm, Yes. Yeah. So what you're tuning into there, which I love, is this idea that when people tell other people something, you know, you did was great you, well, how do I say this? They think they're talking about you. They're actually talking about themselves because their own sense oh. of goodness is a reflection on what their values are. And that's one of the problems very often when people praise other people is it's a, it's a form of coercion, uh, at its worst because it's like saying to people, um, you know, do more of the thing you just did because that makes me happy. Yeah, exactly really? Is that what you want to be doing as a leader? If you're really going to be trying to lead an organization and allow people to grow and stretch so that they're going to be able to do work that they've not been able to do before, then praising them in those ways is going to close down developmental opportunities.
0: Absolutely. So before we move on to the other couple, I just want to, for our listeners who are joining us, we're talking with Lisa Leahy. And Lisa is the co-director of Minds at Work, which is a consulting firm that serves businesses and institutions around the world. She's also a member of the faculty at the Harvard University Graduate School of Education. She and her colleague Robert Keegan are um, are kind of experts on this whole business of change and mostly what gets in the way of it. And uh, she and her colleague Robert Keegan. Have written several books on change. Uh, you probably need to have all three of them in your library: "Immunity to Change," um, uh, "The Everyone Culture," and the book we're talking about today, which is called "How the Way We Talk How the How the Way We Talk Can Change the Way We Work." Um, So you also then talk about, these are, again, these social language transformations. You talk about the rules, uh, changing from the language of rules and policies to the language of public agreement. And when I read that, I think to myself, is that sort of, are we moving from top down, here's the way things are going to roll, to some kind of uh, environment in which um there's some kind of co-creation of operating principles is that what is that what you're
1: is that what you're going for there the not exactly though that what you just described is is um how should i say it it's not the intention right uh, first and foremost, but that is a byproduct oh, okay of this so the the idea of having a public agreement rests on this idea that if we do not have a conversation, and in your language, if we don't co-create what we're agreeing to, then we're left having to just respond to rules and policies, and people may have very different ideas about the what the rule and the policy is, and then you have to have somebody who is the rule keeper, right? So... You know, in this way, what you're saying clearly is the byproduct of if we can shift to having a public agreement, it means we're having public conversation uh, uh, and a discourse around. What do we think we can agree to that's going to allow us to be our best functioning selves and our have our our teams functioning as well as possible? So, as an example, um, many teams that we've worked with, when they have a chance to make public agreements with one another about how their team functions, so it's more the process of the team, will say we really do not want to have third party conversations. We want People who are having difficulties with one another to have direct conversations with each other. And people will readily agree to that, right? Um, And then when it comes time to uh, really putting this into practice, people start realizing, wow, that's a very difficult thing to do because it's very um, compelling, to want to tell somebody else that you're mad at what somebody else just did because you start realizing, wow, I get a lot of goodies from having somebody who agrees with me that the person I'm mad at is like, you know, a jerk, right? (laughs) And, And so what you do when you're trying to help people construct these public agreements is you help them to think about, what is it that's going to be really difficult about being able to stay in this this space that is going to allow us to be working most productively? And then people have a chance to talk about all those different permutations. And then our basic stances, we're not So we can all say yes to that, but as the kind of the authors of this idea, our stance is we're not shaking hands on this in order to have gotchas later. We're wanting to say we're all agreeing this is what we're going to do so that when inevitably somebody does not meet that agreement – we can say, okay, there's a gap here between what you signed up for and what's happening. And can we turn that into a learning opportunity? Because we know that you said and agreed up front that you want in on this agreement. So again, we're going back to this idea there's a foot on the accelerator, and the accelerator in the public agreements is saying, for example, we want to have direct communications with each other when when we're having some kind of a snag. But at the very same time, if we don't acknowledge that we're all human and we have to we are, we need to keep developing, uh, then we're not going to recognize that when somebody invariably doesn't, isn't able to do that, it's because they've got their foot on the brake. And can we be curious about what that foot on the brake is, is actually about, right? Yep. So that's, that's an example of yep. the, that second one.
0: Yep. And so the last one, I, I just want, uh, cause we're almost out of time here. The, Make a distinction for me because I found this one interesting from the language of constructive criticism to the language of deconstructive criticism.
1: What are, what's the difference? Well, um, the constructive criticism starts with the belief that the communicator has got a point of view that when delivered is going to be helpful to the person, to the other person. And, So there's an assumption there. I've got the truth of what's happening here. And if I can just think about how to package it in some way so you can hear it, I know you'll be helped by it. That's very different from the language of deconstructive criticism, which takes as a given that we are all meaning makers. And the sense that I might have that I've got a corner on the market of what's true here is really not necessarily true. It is a reflection of what I believe. And if I can take a more curious stance towards my own kind of sense that you've done something that I need to criticize, then I'm going to be much more open to the possibility that actually I had a very different definition of what it meant to be, for example, um, delivering something that was in a final draft form than you did.
0: Yeah. Yeah. This actually reminds me of a book that I use with clients quite often called Difficult Conversations and the love the, that book and the uh, the the authors are totally escaping me at the moment, but
1: yes
0: yes 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 yeah. Yeah. yes we'll we'll put it in the uh, podcast notes, but um in any difficult conversation, you Lisa, have a truth, and I Joan, have a truth and that you have to move to a learning conversation to understand what those truths are and perhaps identify what the third one is.
1: Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So this is very, very similar. And it is basically, I mean, we, that book shares um, uh, kind of the uh, similar stance to the one that we do, which is that we are all meaning makers. Yep. And if you, really take that idea on. You have to be suspect of some of the clear times you just think, "Ah, but I'm right. Uh, yeah, you, you're right within your own frame, but right. that does not make you right in the bigger picture of things.
0: Yeah, it's often very hard for people to let go of the fact, for, for people to acknowledge that right doesn't necessarily matter. <laughs> try that try try saying that to a bunch of lawyers by the way um <laughs> um so um we're pretty much out of time. I I want to ask you one last question as a sort of advice. And and, and I strongly encourage people to grab this book and work through it. It's a great um, thing to do as part of a retreat, as a pre-retreat, to get people to think about these issues and really kind of breathe through them. Um, Last comment about all of these constructs and how they can help a leader who is in a position to to, uh, knowing that some kind of change needs to happen in their organization. Last comments about what this, what this, how this framework can help them.
1: I'll say two things. One is that adults can change. You know, you can teach quote unquote, you know, an old dog, new tricks and, that is a very important um, assertion to make because many people actually believe that adults cannot change. Right. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is when you have noticed that people are not changing, including yourself, the assumption I would go to, first of all, is that you may not be using the right models of change. And that too often our default models of change are oriented towards making technical changes. And all the kinds of things we've been talking about are not technical. They are much more about changes of heart and mind. And if you're looking to help people change their behavior and there's some kind of loss that's involved with them, a loss of their identity, a loss of their sense of competency, a loss of their comfort – you are in a very different territory, and you need to use a model of change that understands there is an interior landscape for every individual that needs to be engaged if you want them to create sustainable change. And the immunity to change model is one such model. Um,
0: excellent. Um- so the the book that we are talking about, uh, written by Robert Keegan and my guest, Lisa Leahy, is called How the Way We Talk Can Change the Way We Work. And um, I found it to be pretty revelatory. And as mentioned, it is not just a book, but also just a... It's kind of a living and breathing thing that you can work through with people because the kind of the kind of discussions that they are raising in this book require time, energy, and attention because to make an organizational change requires that you yourself really understand your own relationship to what change looks like for you and to be able to be open and curious about what it looks like to someone else. And so um, with that, I just want to say, uh, Lisa, I'm really, really glad that you were able to join us. I had not met Lisa before. I bought her book. I actually bought it for my clients a couple of years ago. And I thought, you know, I should actually talk to her in real time. So I'm glad I did. (laughs) And I'm so glad you were available. Thank you so much, Lisa.
1: Oh, thank you. And I just want to direct people to Minds at Work, which is the organization that houses all of the immunity to change work. And, um, there's a lot of programs that we offer through there. If you're interested in learning more about it, please visit Minds at Work. Is it Minds at Work dot? dot, com.
0: dot com. Minds at work dot com. Excellent. Good. I'm glad that you mentioned that. And with that, we are um, out of time. Uh, just as always, know that... Um, free resources for board and staff leaders can always be found on my blog at joangarry.com with two r's uh and uh this is one of about 70 or 80 podcasts i have done you can find a whole list of them on joangary.com by category so think of it as a bit of a library figure out what kind of knot you're trying to untangle and you'll find either a blog post or a podcast that will probably um address one of those knots and uh enrich you uh in some way that will be helpful to you and your organization. Uh, So thanks very much for joining us and we'll see you next time. Joan Gary's obsession with supporting your work takes many forms. Subscribe to her blog at joangary.com reaching over 100,000 visitors monthly from over 170 countries. Explore the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, the best online resource for board and staff leaders of small nonprofits at nonprofitleadershiplab.com. Join 15,000 kindred spirits on Facebook at Thriving Nonprofit with Joan Gary.